at last the end of the 31st Canto of Inferno, this wildly liminal space, the last moments as we get set down onto the ninth icy circle of hell. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk passage by passage through Dante's Inferno for over two years if you've been doing this in real time with me. And we are at the very end of Canto 31 lines 130 through 145. This is my English translation. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can read along, drop a comment. Otherwise, let's just get to the passage itself here toward the very bottom of hell. So said my master, and that one quickly stretched out his hands and grabbed hold of my guide about as Hercules once felt his powerful grip. Virgil, when he felt held tight, said to me, Get over here so I can hold you. Then he made a single bundle out of himself and me. When you look up at the tower of Garacenda, under its leaning wall and a little cloud chances to pass by, it looks as if it's about to fall over. So seemed Antaeus to me as I watched him bend over. At that moment, I wished I could have traveled by another road. But he set us down on the foundation that gulps down Lucifer with Judas. Nor did he stick around, bent over, but raised himself back up like the mast of a ship. There we are. A momentary reference to Judas, the great betrayer of Jesus, to Lucifer, and to the final pit of hell in front of us. Let's take this passage line by line. Let's unpack it just a bit. It's not terribly complicated. And I want to talk a little bit about the constant and incessant references to Lucan here in the 31st Canto, as well as bits about that tower, Garacenda, and finally, the incredible number of similes inside this canto. The passage starts, so said my master, and this is a reference back to the last episode of this podcast and the last passage we read in which Virgil tried to flatter his way, well, did flatter his way, into getting Antaeus to pick them up and set them down into the ninth circle of hell over the rim of this cliff and down onto the icy floor. If you remember, Virgil partially failed at that task, then he succeeded by invoking Dante's success as a poet, essentially, and now Antaeus actually does the deed. He grabs them up, he stretches out his hand, grabs hold of Virgil about as Hercules once felt his powerful grip. We are back one more time to Lucan's Pharsalia. Remember that bit I read you last time from the fourth part of the Pharsalia, starting maybe about line 650, going on from there, even earlier than that. In fact, it starts. And there's this folktale inserted into the Pharsalia when Curio arrives in the area of North Africa. He wants to know why it's called Antaeus's kingdom. And this folktale that some local rustic tells him essentially outlines the story of Antaeus. The story of Antaeus is that he is this giant living here. As we talked last time, he 
gains his power by being in contact with the earth, his mother. He then is set to, set upon by Hercules as one of Hercules' labors. At first, Hercules seems unable to defeat Antaeus because Antaeus keeps stretching himself out on the ground, gathering more power from the earth, standing back up fighting Hercules. They don't seem to be able to come to any victory, at least uh, either one of them does, and Hercules seems momentarily befuddled. Then Hercules figures it out, figures out that this, this being, Antaeus, is connected to the earth and lifts him up off the ground. In so doing, robs him of his power, and we're told in Lucan's Pharsalia that Antaeus turns icy cold, that once he's no longer touching the earth, all his power is drained out of him, and he basically just turns into a big frozen popsicle in Hercules's arms and dies. That icicle, of course, we've already talked about this, is the icy sheet ahead of us. I mean, it's not the icy sheet ahead of us, but you know, there's a resonance going on between Antaeus's death and this bit of hell that's ahead. Again, we're back in Lucan's Pharsalia, and we have to ask the question, why so much Lucan here? And let me tell you that I still think the major work on the connection of the Pharsalia and Dante's comedy has not been done. The Pharsalia is Lucan's tragedy of Caesar's rise to power. Lucan sees the destruction of the Roman Republic and the coming of the empire as a tragic turn of events. And Lucan is hearkening back to a nobler time in the Republic when he writes the Pharsalia in 61 Common Era. There is an undercutting irony about Rome going on in the Pharsalia and Lucan's dismissal of Caesar. And we should note that this irony continues out to Dante, who is also somewhat ambivalent about Caesar. After all, Dante has great respect for Rome, because after all, it is where the church is based. But if you remember, Caesar is almost brushed off way back up there in limbo. He's standing there nicely dressed, and yet he just gets a line of the poem. This is a curious thing for a figure who is so central to Dante's vision. Not that Caesar is central, but Rome is so central, and you would think that Julius would get more respect. Dante is picking up clues from Lucan, from the Pharsalia, and from the irony that the empire is not the Republic. It's not the noble Republic. Instead, it is the fierce warmongering empire. There is so much Lucan being dropped here because Lucan's tragic epic is about this moment of change. And we have a great deal about Rome ahead of us. In fact, without giving away the plot too much, we have Brutus and Cassius ahead of us. Given that, this irony of Lucan's is subtly running underneath the text itself. It's expressing Dante's ambivalence. And Dante is very brave to use the Pharsalia, given his own love of Rome and believing it is the God-fated place where the church will be instituted. He's playing a dangerous game by playing around with Lucan, 
And he's setting us up for a final vision here. While we are coming down to the place where, as I've already told you, we will find Brutus and Cassius, who, of course, kill Julius Caesar, we are nonetheless kind of in a seesaw, sing-song, back and forth here with the irony undercutting the founding of Rome. These great assassins who bring Caesar down. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? In Shakespeare's telling of it, they're trying to stop the coming of the empire. We, You know, that play by Shakespeare, it should never be called the tragedy of Julius Caesar. It's the tragedy of Brutus. Brutus is the idealist who truly believes in the ideal of the Roman Republic, and he wants to bring Caesar down in order to preserve the ideals of the Republic. That's not so different from Dante's position. And so using the Pharsalia here leads us to an undercutting irony despite what is ahead of us as the final vision of hell involving Brutus and Cassius. It's a complicated stance to hold in your brain, so let's just let it sit there and percolate and pass on in the passage. Antaeus reaches down, grabs Virgil. Virgil feels held tight. Virgil says, get over here, you know, quickly so I can hold you. He makes a single bundle out of himself and me. It's hard not to think of writing on the back of Garion. Virgil puts himself behind the pilgrim so that Garion's scorpion tail won't hurt the pilgrim. Here again, Virgil is kind of saving the pilgrim, although this seems a little bit more, what do I say, manhandled. They're picked up and then, you know, they're put down. But first comes this crazy and really wild simile. When you look up at the Tower of Gadasenda under its leaning wall and a little cloud chances to pass by, it looks as if it's about to fall. Gadasenda. Yet another simile in a canto filled with them. We're going to talk about that in a minute. This is the tower in Bologna. There are actually now two towers, but Dante knows one of them, Gadasenda. It's actually 10 feet out of the perpendicular at this point. It was out of the perpendicular in Dante's day. We don't actually know how far it was out of the perpendicular in Dante's day. We know that it was leaning because here Dante is basically telling us it's leaning. And when you see a cloud go behind it, Dante says, it seems because it's already leaning, it seems like it's going to fall over. Well, that's the sensation of Antaeus stooping down to pick them up. There's something that's as if it could fall, as if Antaeus could fall over on top of them. Garrisenda is important to note here because this was the time in which so many towns, we've already passed Monteregioni, are building these giant towers as defense mechanisms. Towns in the Middle Ages in Central Italy are bristling with towers. Garrisenda, by the way, the if you went now and saw it, it's actually shorter than it was in Dante's Day. Part of it was uh, broken down in war fighting, uh, but it was it's shorter today than it was in Dante's Day. But still, nonetheless, it's part of this bristling hubris, this pride. And I think we should connect that bristling war pride 
to these giants that ring the final pit of hell. There's something about their pride, their haughtiness. I mean, right? We were told that Antaeus sneers at Virgil, and he's very got this very haughty look on his face. His snout. <laughs> he's got this very haughty look on his snout. We should see that there is a kind of bristling pride here, just like these towers in these towns, that isn't fully warranted. It may be scary, but really, what does it add up to? I mean, so you build a tower in a town. Okay, you build this six-story tower, and, you know, from the top of it, you can pour boiling oil, and you can shoot arrows, but in the end, the Holy Roman Empire marches down and basically runs over your town, towers and all. Good for your towers. They carry a lot of pride. Not sure they're great in a final battle, especially because A, they are such targets, and B, they take so many soldiers to man. Given that you're putting so much manpower into these towers, there are other parts of your walls that are probably less defended. Your bristling pride doesn't add up to very much in the end. Like the bristling pride of nuclear weapons today. Okay, you have a lot of them. You're going to use them? Because if you use them, then the other sides use them, and then we're all gone. Your bristling pride in your military prowess, what does it really add up to? Antaeus bends down. We see this kind of falling tower. It's so great. This falling tower. And again, this insistence on the giants as towers and the towers as giants, this constant insistence on the metaphoric illusion, the poetic space. But let's pass on from that for just a second and say the text says, at that moment, I wish I could have traveled by another road. This is such a fascinating little bit. I wish I could have traveled by another road. Because who is talking? Is that the pilgrim saying, oh, you know, I wish there were stairs down into this final pit of hell? Or is that the poet? Always, I hear just a little bit of the poet behind that line. The literary allusions and the classical allusions and the biblical allusions have become so complicated in the 31st canto. And there are so many cross currents from the Aeneid, from Stasius, from Lucan, from the Bible, from poetics, from the figure of Virgil to the poet of Virgil to the character that Dante creates. There are so many different crossing currents. I always see this line as one little breather from the poet before the last circle of hell. As if he's saying, wow, I don't know. I've gotten in this thing, and it has gotten deep, and I am really swimming in the top of my depths. I mean, my head is just above water right now, given all that's going on. I really wish I could have traveled, even in this poem, by another road. So he sits them down on the foundation that gulps down, that swallows Lucifer with Judas. And we should just pause right there on that line that gulps down or swallows Lucifer 
with Judas. This is really the first time hell has been described as a mouth. And it's interesting that Dante has shied away from this imagery because so much of the imagery of hell in Dante's day is hell as a gaping open mouth. And it takes us all the way down to the 31st canto to finally hit that what would be in Dante's day cliched imagery, the hell of the open maw. And in this case, that open maw, that cliche, leads us straight to Lucifer and Judas. And now we know where we're headed. We've caught a glimpse of the ice sheet ahead of us, and now we know who lies ahead of us. Antaeus doesn't stick around, bent over, but he raises himself up like the mast of a ship. That is the final illusion, the final uh, metaphor, the final simile. It's giants. No, it's towers. No, now it's a mast of a ship. Interestingly, that at the last line, Dante changes the imagery. It's been tower, 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 mast of a ship. Is that because the ship has a rocking motion? Is that because Dante finally pulls the rug out from under us and defamiliarizes the scene? I mean, we become very familiar with the tower motif. And so we've got the tower motif, tower motif, tower motif. And the very last second, Dante says, nope, sail motif, mast motif, thereby defamiliarizes poetically the scene so that we see it differently at the very last second. Maybe... Is it that finally the insistence on illusion has just created illusion on top of illusion until the canto has to end at a metaphor, at an illusion? Maybe. Let's talk through those illusions. There are so many of them inside Canto 31. We start out with Achilles' spear and how it can wound and then heal. We move from there to Roland's horn, the blowing of the horn. That's not truly a simile, but it's a little historical node that acts kind of like a simile. So Nimrod's horn being blown is like Roland's horn when Charlemagne is is attacked by the Islamic forces. Then we have that commonplace uh, simile about the lifting of mist. Virgil says, well, they're really not towers. They're giants. And the pilgrim says, you know, like the mist lifted up. I I actually saw that they were indeed giants. We have the Monte Regioni Towers, that metaphor that goes on for these giants. Back to the towers. We have the pine cone at St. Peter's. Then we have the fig leaf imagery that the Cliff's walls are like Adam and Eve's fig leaves in the Garden of Eden once they fall and know they're naked. We have the giant shaking, and we have that line, never had an earthquake shook a tower as this giant shook. There's yet another metaphor. Now we come to Garrisenda, and we finally end with a ship's mast. All of this wrapping around the tower imagery, nine distinct similes, or historical notes that act like similes, all wrapping around this tower motif. Why this insistence on simile? Why this insistence on this poetic language? Let me give you a couple answers, and I'm not going to come to a final conclusion here. Um, I'm going to give you a couple possible answers. Is it that we are coming toward the bottom of hell, and so we are moving beyond what traditionally descriptive language can do? In order to describe where we're coming to, which is the final place of evil, in order to describe here, the language has to become 
become more and more poetic. It has to become more and more crafted because we're starting to slip beyond the bounds of what's possible in language. We'll talk about that much more in the ninth pit. And that may be why this 31st canto is setting us up with so many similes. It may also be that there is a fusing of reality and poetic claims inside this canto. And remember I told you the ninth circle is all about blurring boundaries, blurring the boundaries between cantos, blurring the boundaries between the various sub-rings of the ninth circle. Well, we're blurring the boundaries here between reality claims and poetic claims. We're going back and forth. Is that setting us up, that blur for what's ahead in a poetic landscape? Or, and here's the third option, is Canto 31 really about the relationship of poets to each other? After all, it is Virgil quoting Lucan. It is suddenly Dante adding to the biblical stories. It's Dante quoting Augustine. There's all kinds of poets relating to poets, writers relating to writers, all bound around, and this is what I find intriguing here if you want to get terribly meta, all bound around the fear of giants. Just think about that for a minute. Is Canto 31 about the relationship of poets to each other while there are giants standing nearby that are actually very frightening? Or shall I put it this way? Are there figures that come from the past that are too misty and too held far back in the past to be written about in contemporary poetry? By the time Antaeus comes up, Virgil's kind of having to grasp at straws to describe him. Are there pieces of the past that are gigantic, but almost beyond the bounds of modern, well, for Dante, modern, we would say medieval, but for Dante, modern poetry? An interesting question. It may be too meta, and it may push the boundaries of meta too far. It may be that some of the other answers are simpler and better, or it may be that you could come up with other answers for why this canto is so intent on its similes, especially one which proves wholly problematic. I'm picking up what I'm about to say from the great and late Dantista Robert Hollander, and I mention him a lot in this podcast, and he is such a seminal figure in Anglo-American Dante studies. Maybe in Italian Dante studies too, but Italian Dante studies carry on a much more allegorical tradition of interpreting the poem. The Anglo-American come out of a neo-rationalist perspective on the poem, and Hollander is definitely in that tradition. What I'm about to tell you is Hollander's point, and I love this bit. Remember back to Roland and his horn. Remember when Nimrod blows his horn, but we don't know it's Nimrod. And the line comes up about, you know, this is like when Roland blew his horn and Charlemagne was way too far ahead and couldn't save him and the Islamic forces attack. Well, Hollander says that little historical moment carries out throughout this entire canto. And I love what happens here. Hollander says that we're told, undoubtedly, that Nimrod and Roland are linked. They're both the hornblowers, right? It's already a little weird to link this chivalric romance figure, Roland, with Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. But okay, we link them. If we link them, then Charlemagne would be linked to what's ahead of us. 
would be linked to Lucifer, which means the traitor Ganelon, who allows the invaders inside, would be Antaeus. It is Antaeus who betrays Lucifer's final realm here and lets the pilgrim and his guide down into it, which means if we follow it out, and this is the part I love more than I can even tell you, which means that Dante and Virgil are the Islamic forces <laughs> who take the betrayal and penetrate into the final kingdom. I mean, just think about that fabulous way that that works out. If Nimrod is Roland, then Lucifer ahead of us is Charlemagne. This is the final kingdom, which means that the traitor Ganelon is Antaeus, who lets these people down into the final kingdom, breaches the walls. And who breached the walls? And who were those people? While in the Roland story, there is Islamic forces. Here it's Virgil and Dante. So Virgil and Dante then are the Islamic forces that penetrate the kingdom. Did Dante intend that? I have no idea. What I know is that Dante wrote a text that allows it. That text that is created here allows these kind of wildly ironic readings to arise out of it. And this is, again, why I say the 34th Canto is so amazing, because the irony is thick, whether intentional or accidental, because of the release of so many literary and historical traditions into one canto, the irony becomes astoundingly modern. Let's read the end of the canto one more time. My translation of Inferno, canto 31, lines 130 through 145. So said my master, and that one, Antaeus, quickly stretched out his hands and grabbed hold of my guide, about as Hercules once felt his powerful grip. Virgil, when he felt held tight, said to me, get over here so I can hold you. Then he made a single bundle out of himself and me. When you look up at the tower of Garrisenda under its leaning wall and a little cloud chances to pass by, it looks as if it's about to fall over. So seemed Antaeus to me as I watched him bend over. At that moment, I wished I could have traveled by another road. But he set us down on the foundation that gulps down Lucifer with Judas. Nor did he stick around bent over, but raised himself back up like the mast of a ship. We've come all the way out to the end of the 31st canto, and we are ready to enter the 32nd canto of Inferno. We will do that in the next episode of this podcast. To get there, please subscribe to this podcast. Please rate it if you're enjoying it. Great ratings are so helpful with the analytics for me. I really thank you for taking the time to do that. Drop down on that Apple or Audible page. You'll see where it says Writer of You. You can... It's just super helpful. I am, as I've told you a million times, unsupported. I'm not doing this for any reason other than the sheer joy of being able to do it. And I cannot believe I have reached a place in my life where I can do this for the sheer joy of doing it. Thanks for being along on this crazy journey with me. Get ready, because we're about to enter the wild, icy, windy, and frozen territory of the final circle of hell on Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. Get on your snow boots. It's about to get cold.